Welcome to Whisking It All with your host, Angela Spazito, co-founder of Whisk.ai, a food and beverage intelligence platform. We're going to be interviewing hospitality professionals around the world to really understand how they do what they do. All right, welcome to another episode of Whisking It All. We're here today with the CEO and co-founder of Ritual, Ray Reddy. Ray, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me on, Of course. So the way I typically like to start these shows is maybe a little brief history. So before maybe going back in time, can you just tell our audience, I'm sure most of them know, but for those who don't, what is Ritual? Ritual is an order head app um, that works primarily in a whole bunch of downtown cores. Um, was originally started for busy office workers um, didn't have time to, to wait in line and queue up for food. Uh, just let them place the order at their desk or wherever they were and they could, you know, the order would be waiting for them when they got there. Um, and it expanded, you know, beyond offices. A lot of people use it at home on evenings and weekends. There's a great loyalty program, you know, lots of lots of benefits to, to using the app. And um, yeah, we started in Toronto, still, still home. Uh, but we're in a bunch of cities and countries around the world. That's awesome. Um, and yeah, I know, I know Ritual is quite big. And like you said, uh, definitely, definitely more than a couple of cities. Uh, but to, to just maybe walk through your journey, you know, briefly, what led you to Ritual? So what, what were you doing before Ritual? Yeah, so I had uh, previously built a, co- a company in the commerce space that uh, Google acquired. And I spent a, lo- a long time, I spent all my time at Google actually on mobile commerce and shopping. So that was kind of when, uh, when I first kind of got just exposure to what was happening in, in local, um, just thinking about various POS systems. I, I think the overarching theme was that in the same way that retailers and the travel space had gone online in like the previous decade, um, you know, the, the consensus was that local businesses were going to go online in a, in a very big way um, this decade, the last decade, and, and, and into this one. Um, and, you know, that was just a, a plethora of opportunity. Uh, it means that, you know, restaurants, but not just restaurants, like all, all local businesses would start to adopt all kinds of digital tools and just embrace the Internet in a much bigger way. Um, not just to not just to get in front of their customers and provide more convenience, but you know all the types of things that, that restaurants do today with digital, including using platforms like you know like Whisk's solution to help automate, um, just solve difficult problems, gain efficiency, you know start to think about the, the world in like a digital first way. So I think that was really the overarching theme. And um, one of the other things I realized was that at, at least at the time when this was evolving. It was very difficult to solve problems in local at scale, meaning it was hard to it was hard to go deep enough and work with enough restaurants, but also uh, be wide enough that it would be compelling for you know very large companies to want to invest in. And so I think at the time, the reason I left Google was um, it, it just didn't seem like a large a very large company was going to be able to tackle this problem neighborhood by neighborhood, city by city. You know, that, that was in the early days of local, you know, not just us, but even the food delivery companies, like no company was ever successful launching an entire country all at once, or in fact, an entire you know state or even a very large city all at once tended to be um, 
very like painstakingly, you know, uh, restaurant by restaurant building that kind of um, uh, base of restaurants. And it, it tended to be very slow because you had to go very deep. And it, it took, you know, smaller companies that had the patience to, to do that and to invest that, you know, eventually got to a level of scale, but it, it never started in that way. That's awesome. And, and I think like, you know, just out of curiosity, right? Like you sold your, your, your company Push Life to, to Google, as you mentioned, and, and, and then worked there for a bit. And um, it sounded like maybe some people would have stopped there, right? Like life is good, had a little exit. What, what, what got you that itch to say, all right, I solved the problem, I had an exit but I want to solve, you know, an even bigger problem. What got you back onto that, you know, course, I guess. Yeah, I've always been uh, very, like, mission-driven in the sense that, like, for me, I've never I've never started a company for the sake of starting a company. Um, I'm just not one of those people that's like, well, you know, I want to be an entrepreneur and I'll figure out what I want to do along the yeah. way. I think for me, it's always been in reverse. Um, I think starting businesses is really hard um, and it, it requires like extreme conviction in something. And I think off, often from a, you know, from a financial perspective, I don't even know that it makes sense. Um, uh, you know, when you, when you, when you factor in, you know, the failure rate and, and all of, you know, the opportunity cost and all sorts of stuff. So for me, it's never been, uh, it's always been like, I get excited enough about an idea. I get excited enough about a product that I feel should exist, but it doesn't exist. And I imagine, you know, how nice it would be if a product like that existed. How I usually how I would enjoy using a product like that myself as a user, and hope that many more people feel like me. Um, and that tend, you know, you're not always right on those things. Uh, when you are, it can be, you know, it's very rewarding. Uh, you know, to me, it's like a form of. There's no greater. To, to me, there's no greater um, reward than than seeing something you imagined in your head take shape in the real world yes. and see users enjoy. You know, something that was like literally like fiction in your head at one point. Yeah. Um, and I, I just get a lot. I, I just get a lot of. Um, yeah. Just. That, that that to me is you know is why I do it. Um, that's awesome. And and so yeah, I think that's kind of how I how I felt at the time is like there, there has to be a better way of allowing users to you know digitally discover and transact with restaurants versus having to you know walk in and do it sort of the analog way. Um, and and so we 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 built a product that we thought should exist, and the rest is history in a way, I guess. That's awesome. And, and, and this was, if I'm not mistaken, this was what, 2014, 2015? 14. Yeah. 2014. There you yeah. go. Wow. Okay. So at that time, man, I was definitely, uh, really ahead of the curve. And so was, was that, yeah, was really, 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 which yeah. is, which is awesome. And so the pain you felt, was it, you know, definitely like the problem is, you know, super clear now, but, but I think you were definitely a visionary to see it, you know, that far ahead. Um, but what pain did you feel? Was it that you were personally kind of more like, you know what I mean? Like, were there any anecdotes that you had that, that you kind of hit the wall or was it more just about, a, a, you know, I think what was, what was clear, you know, this is the way that technology adoption tends to work out, which is big chains tend to invest in technology because they can. Yes. Right. And, and even before technology was software, you know, for, for a while, technology was just 
operations and KDSs and things like that. That was what technology in a restaurant meant. And again, who adopted that? Well, big chains. They used it to get massive efficiency gains, get their margins in a good place, streamline the experience. You know, they invested early. Most small businesses can't really do that or, or don't really do that, I would say, uh, for many reasons. Um, and and it felt like, you know, and, and that that was like one level of, of um, problem solution ROI, but an entirely different level was, you know, thinking about like, well, what is the internet? What is the internet going to mean when you intersect that with local? Like, what does it mean when the primary way that a consumer discovers your restaurant is not by walking down the street and, and, and looking at a sign, which is, which is the way that, you know, certainly even 10 years ago, that was the primary way that you would be discovered. And it's crazy to think that, you know, in such a short period of time, even faster than I expected, to be honest, that's flipped on its head. And if you don't exist online, you kind of don't exist, right? Mm. Um, and so I think that that, like, it's very profound. And as usual, you know, who had the head start here? Well, all of the big chains, um, you know, Starbucks, uh, the, there was only one uh, large restaurant brand that was investing in mobile order ahead at the time that we started. And, you know, I, I don't know, maybe there were two or three, but the, the, the one that, you know, the only one that took it as seriously and actually reported on it and, you know, had, a, had an entire division of people working on it was Starbucks, right? So they were, they were way ahead of everyone. They were one of the first order head apps, had a loyalty program built in, um, you know, so they took it very seriously and, and it is a core, you know, some very meaningful portion of their sales even back in the day came from, from digital. So they were like, you know, the early, the early investor in it. And I think they've seen huge, huge dividends as a result. And we just knew, you know, to answer your question of the problem, saw it as not only was this a, something that we felt was going to be inevitable consumer behavior, um, but we thought that the, the second part of this was that if someone didn't make this available to small businesses, well, that's just another way that, you know, the large, the large chains have an advantage that they're going to use against the small guys. And, you know, for me personally, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan, like I wouldn't call myself like a foodie, but I think that I really value local businesses in, in the, in the community. You know, I still live downtown and, um, and for me, like one of my favorite things to do is just like explore new neighborhoods and check out new, you know, new businesses. I, I, I look at small businesses almost as like, you know, artisans who, whose, whose goods or product happens to be food, right. But they're in a way artists, um, uh, especially the good ones. Right. Um, and I think, I think it'd be a real shame if the world was dominated by large chain restaurants and. You know, my, my only my only options in a lot of these neighborhoods were, you know, the big the big chain options. Like to me, that's a sad that's a sad world. Um, and uh, you know, so part of it is that I like to see small businesses win. Yeah. Uh, I like to see you know local like businesses who really have like a passion for what they do uh, and the products that they build. You know, can we do a small part to help them level the playing awesome. field and compete and you know do their thing. Yeah. Uh, they don't have to be experts in software and digital. They just have to do their thing, you know, make great coffee, make good yeah. croissants, whatever is your thing. You're so right. do that, do your thing really well. And can we, can we help with, you know, with the, the technology side? That's awesome. And it's funny, it's funny what you mentioned about like, you know, the, what, you know, the, the local vibe, because I've always thought of that too, about like what makes a city and a big part of that, you know, in terms of like tourism and wanting to visit a city is all the local 
things, right? It's the difference between, let's say, going to Montreal and why Montreal is so popular, let's say, in the restaurant scene totally. versus, you know, going to maybe a random town in the U.S. Where it's the fabric. The it's the fabric <laughs> of the community, right? Right. It's, the, it's, right. it's literally the fabric of the community. So right. Yeah. And, and it's funny because in the early, early days, I remember Ritual, and, I, and obviously I was in Toronto as well at the time. Um, and at first, it's it's funny, and I want to just share this because maybe people listening they can that don't know that can, can imagine it, but. Uh, I used to always be like, yeah, but why would people want to pick up? Like, I didn't really get it. Like it, like it said, but you were clearly the visionary and onto something, but I was like, I don't get it. And then I remember the first time I tried it and then I was like, oh, I get it now. And it was funny because it was very different to hear about it and then to try it. Uh, and hearing about it was interesting. I was like, okay, cool. Instead of delivering, you pick it up. Cool. But then working downtown, downtown core, not wanting to spend 30 minutes of my lunch in line and being able to order pick up, I started seeing that. You know, especially you guys launching in Toronto, how how really quickly it adopted and it was everywhere and all these, you know, QSRs and other restaurants and cafes too. And it was a really, really cool concept. So I guess I'd love to know, like, how did you kind of create that, you know, initial growth, right? So you go from problem, clear problem, you start maybe testing it out. How do you then start growing because it's a local kind of play, like like what's what's the plan? You know, you know, our growth from from I would say very early on was very um, was a big departure from the way that I think most companies approach growth. Um, we, you know, our belief was well, two things. One was if we didn't, if we weren't, if you couldn't become the app for your neighborhood, it was not about it was not about having one restaurant or two restaurants. It was. Could we actually become an app for your neighborhood? And I remember, you know, uh, at the time, it, it was not about how quickly you can get to a thousand restaurants or a hundred restaurants, because it, it's very easy. If you said, you know what, can I get a hundred restaurants across Canada to do, to do anything? Yeah, you can make that happen. Right. Well, but getting a hundred restaurants in one part of a city, in a small part of a city that represent, you know, 50% of all restaurants in that in that area, getting to a, a coverage number where, you know, can you get 50% of all restaurants to do something in an area? Well, that's really, really tough, right? Way harder. Even like getting 20 restaurants that make up 50% of a neighborhood is way harder than getting 500 restaurants across the country. Um, you know, because again, what it means is that you need to have an extremely high opt-in rate, right? Uh, you, you, to, to get 50% of restaurants, it means that, you know, 80% of the restaurants that you actually talk to say yes. Right. Well, there's very few things that 80% of people <laughs> you talk to, you know, say yes to. And, and, and this was, you know, kind of the early challenge where, you know, my sense was, I'm, I don't even want to start this business if that wasn't true. Because what I knew was like, look, if that, if that isn't true, if we can't get a meaningful number of restaurants to come together, and be accessible to users well then like that was the bell okay that was the problem we were solving was the right. all in one place consistency of experience right. you know no mental load of having to switch between your login and this person's login and all sorts of stuff so i think we knew that like that was the bell. and and so um no one cared about whether we had or, or we didn't care whether we, the number was 50 or 100 what we measured ourselves up was coverage what percentage of places can a user access, you know, where they live or where they work. And, and we, we had very early on, we had very good success, right? Um, which, which, which is why we, we built the, we started the company. In fact, before we even named the company, I said, I don't even want to name the company <laughs> unless we prove this is true. Because by the way, if this isn't true, there isn't, a, it's not a problem that we're going to, 
No, it's just barking up the wrong tree. So, wow. so we, we had, we were a numbered company until we rolled out the experiment, okay, simulated what we wanted to in not even a neighborhood, but for a single office building. Okay. Um, and we said, let's go get all of the restaurants around this office building that we think these people would, would want to order from. It was less than 20. Okay. We got the vast majority of them and what we, and it was, you know, when we, when we look at that cohort and how that cohort did of users, uh, it was great. And, and we were like, we, we proved in a, in a very uh, quick and dirty way, we proved the hypothesis of why this company should exist or why this product That's should awesome. exist. And, you know, then from that point on, I, I think that the second thing we did was in terms of you know, growth was very early on, we said, you know, look, we don't want to be competing against restaurants. Okay. We don't want to be, we don't want to be something that restaurants feel like, you know, ordering on ritual is a, is a problem. And I want to, I would rather have my customer come in the store. In fact, we wanted to, we wanted to flip the switch and say, you know, what, what would it take for restaurants to join us in trying to, we, we want them to see the benefit of having their customers transact with them digitally, be able to reach them through marketing, be able to measure the you know, the lifetime value of a user for the first time and understand how to increase that. All of the things that, you know, e-commerce retailers figured out um, as they transitioned from being primarily stored to primarily online, we thought that the right. same transition would have to happen. And we wanted to be partners, not competitors with the restaurant. Okay? And so one of the things that we did very uniquely was we, we told the restaurant, look, if you onboard your customers onto our platform, you don't have to pay commissions on them at, at all. Forever in perpetuity. Those are we, we want you to help us, um, you know, accelerate this thing and, and, and accelerate adoption. And, and so that's kind of the short answer was we we figured out that you know and this is one of my big beliefs in general going forward is like if you are aligned with your customers, things just tend to work out. Hmm. And if you're misaligned with your customers, then you have to get uh, you have to get every little thing right because you're you're just fighting a very difficult war where you know your customers are just trying to get rid of you um, and and so you have to do everything else perfectly but what i found was like when you're aligned with your customers you can actually get a few things wrong it's okay because they're rooting for you they want you to win right that's awesome. uh, and I, I just think that that makes a, a really big difference yeah that's awesome really well said and it's it's super interesting to hear because, you know, for a lot of people listening, including myself, it's we usually do the opposite, right? It's like when you're building a business, you you set everything else up and, and you kind of then start experimenting. And it's, it's a hard lesson to learn, but the faster you can kind of like get in touch with the customer and just see see if what you're doing is worth it, the better. And I guess one thing that kind of popped in my mind when you're talking is since you didn't have the name by then, how'd you come up with the name Ritual? I just got to know. Um, you know, it just it just came to me one day. Yeah, uh, I think that I think that we we battered around a lot of other options. You know, the one weird thing about a name you learn as you go through a naming process. I think it's you know whether you're naming a company or a human or <laughs> or anything else. It's the same thing. Where like no, I think that things grow into their name, and you know, there's no no every name feels awkward at the yeah. start. Um, you know, when you're not used to it, and and just like I think you know. People probably also go into names. I think you know, or babies do, and 
I think in the same way that companies do too. And yeah. I would say Ritual was an, was an awkward name probably at the start for many people. Uh, right. it, was, it was a little divisive. Um, I think, um, you know, consumers loved it. I think internally it was, it's always awkward. Um, right. And there's, it's, it's just a tough thing it's because it's very subjective. There's no, yeah. there's no such thing as like an objective good name, right? right? I'm not sure what it means. You can read a lot about it, but at the end of the day, it's like what feels right. And right. yeah, I think, you know, the thing that we really um, honed in on was that we wanted this to be part of someone's everyday life. We, we wanted this to be an app used daily, not once a month. Yeah. We wanted to be, we wanted to be ingrained in how you thought about, you know, your morning coffee purchase, your morning coffee. That's kind of where the word came from is like, you know, for a lot of people, you know, coffee. they start their work day with the coffee. It's a bit of a ritual. It's something that they do every day. You know, most people have a routine, whether that it's daily sense. or weekly on how they do things. And I think that's kind of where the word came from. That makes sense. That makes sense. And I think one thing you guys did differently and, and, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but, but I, at least I remember at the time, it's the prices were the same as, you know, I'd buy coffee and I'd go in and I'd see it was the same price as that. So that was one thing that I remember was pretty neat. Is that, is that still, is still a thing? Is that a, you're, 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 you're gonna, uh, this is, I'd say this is like one of the most important topics in, okay. <laughs> in the system today that, you know, okay. that, you're, that you're touching on. So, so very happy to talk about it. Um, you know, if I, if I were to do, so the short answer is yes, it is, but there's a big asterisk because yeah. the ecosystem has changed in a big way and mm. it is, it is now very complicated. Um, I think that, so a few things, you know, if you go back to 2014 in, in some ways, the world was, was simple then in that most restaurants and coffee shops didn't have the, the notion of online ordering order had didn't really exist. Um, yeah. delivery was nascent, um, at that time. And so, you know, they were, um, these are few of the word like omni-channel. They, they were, they were single channel and they had to become omni-channel and figure out how to balance digital orders with in-store orders, you know, in the same way, by the way, retailers went through the same journey. That's yeah. where the name comes from. Um, yeah. and you know, most restaurants have to, have to now go, you know, ha have gone through that journey at this point. Um, you know, but the world changed as they went through that, you know, that journey back, back in the day, every platform had a lot of control because, um, the, the, the good side of that was platforms had control. The bad side of it was restaurants had to deal with tablet health. Yeah. <laughs> okay. They had, they had seven different, uh, you know, things beeping at them, right. which, which, which was just havoc. Okay. Um, but platforms retained a lot of control. The change in the world is that, um, which is very positive, I think, for, for restaurant operations, is that everything has now gotten consolidated into the POS. Yes. Okay? But, the, but, the, but the challenge with that is you are now uh, limited to uh, integration types that certain POSs support. Mm. And, and there's a few implications in that. Uh, the biggest one is most POSs only support the notion of a third-party price, of a single third-party price. And, and unfortunately, um, third-party today is synonymous with delivery. Um, and, and, you know, and, and going one level deeper on that, delivery prices are almost always inflated. Mm. Okay? Um, it, it's actually um, sometimes still surprising to me how unaware 
consumers are about this. Um, you know, we all have this general feeling that delivery is expensive. We know it. it's like, how, how did that end up costing a hundred dollars right, when it gets right, to right. the door? And yeah. I think what most consumers are aware of is uh, that, you know, there are service charges and delivery fees and tips, like all that, that's the stuff that people are aware of. What they're not aware of is you are paying a different menu price for the same dish. Okay. This is the dirty secret in the industry right now. And, and the reason for it, by the way, um, no one, no one's actually the villain in this story. This is just, you know, to some degree reality in, in first world developed countries, labor is expensive. So, you know, for a long time, even though the delivery companies charged extremely high commissions, 25, 30%, you can be outraged about it. But the point is that in a, in a, you know, in a developed country where the cost of labor is very high, yeah. um, it just is very expensive to move a product from one neighborhood to another in, in real time. Yeah. This, it costs dollars, not cents. Okay? Yeah. It's expensive. Okay. So how, how does a restaurant that operates in general on a 10% profit margin yeah. pay a 25% commission for delivery? Well, in the early days, there was the argument that it was incremental and there was like fancy math that people would do to make it sound like, well, if you look at it, you know, it's like classic accounting yeah. tricks, right? So if you look yeah. at it in this way, it all yeah. makes sense. Yeah. But obviously, um, over time, as these things become more and more popular, it's clearly not incremental. It is a, you know, people choose to buy one way instead of another. And, and so you're left with, well, how can I pay a 25% commission if my profit margin is 10%, you yeah. know, 30% in some cases. Yeah. Um, well, the answer is pass it on to the consumer. And so what restaurants are doing, so, so the strange thing is the sentiment right now is actually wrong. It's like consumers being like, oh, you know, poor restaurants who, who are being um, uh, taken advantage of with all these high commissions. Well, that's actually not, not true. <laughs> um, the vast majority of restaurants have, have decided to pass on these commissions to consumers, okay? In the form of, of inflating the menu prices by said commission. Um, and, and, and so the challenge, you know, so bringing this back to like ritual and where we are, one of the challenges now is in some cases, I, I wouldn't say that it's the majority of the time, it's definitely the minority, but it's, you know, it's, it's more than one in a hundred times. It's more than, than we'd like to see, um, where you actually have restaurants who don't even necessarily want to inflate their prices for pickup. Um, they, they want to do it for delivery. Um, because obviously our, you know, because ritual is pickup, like everything about our business is more, um, uh, restaurant friendly. Okay. Yeah. So our, our commission rates are, are significantly lower you know, than delivery, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the challenge is that in many cases they can't, it, it's like almost, it's getting to a point where for certain POSs, it's almost like technically not possible to have different pricing, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a you know it's a i think it's a really complicated issue yeah. on how this is going to play out um you know it's i would say more than half of the restaurants have decided that the only way they can make delivery economics work is by passing on the cost to to consumers uh in the form of inflated menu prices um and it's actually unclear to me how all of this will end um you know if you look at e-commerce by the way uh just as a as a parallel um that is actually what many retailers tried to do in the early days. They said, um, you know, we are going to have the idea of a store price 
And because it's actually going to cost us more to deliver to you, we're going to make our items on, on e-commerce more expensive, which obviously was a foolish idea. Um, uh, in, in the end, like it, like it was, it was smart in that it reflected the cost of how of the approach that they were taking. It was, it was foolish in the sense that they hamstrung their future growth, and in fact, let Amazon get an even larger lead um, by by getting it wrong in the early days, and you know, giving giving Amazon not just a five year head start but a ten year head start by the time many of them got their act together. Right. And you know, the conclusion in retail was you have to have consistent pricing. You can't have you know uh, users be wondering whether or not a digital channel was going to you know, going to be worse off or better off. So you know, in the end, I would say that. If you take the lessons from other, um, from other industries and, and other sort of consumer verticals, the current approach should not and likely will not work. Um, it, it, it just breeds too much distrust uh, in consumers, and I think um, you know. In the end, I, I would say that again, e- even though we've made a big, even though it feels like delivery is. Um, Everything in terms of third-party takeout today. The reality is, it's still very, it's still the minority sales, like like the, like significantly minor minority, like under twenty percent of restaurant sales right now are are delivered well under. So so I think what what people don't realize is you know eighty percent eighty percent of of restaurant sales still whether that's drive-through or curbside pickup. Or you know, people walking into stores uh, and using an order ahead, um, you know, using order ahead functionality. The vast majority is still people going to restaurants picking it up, and the simple reason is not because it's more convenient, it's because it's cheaper. Right. Um, that makes sense. And, and I think, and I think, you know, when you think about the future of growth of this, I think that the big challenge ahead of us is not, you know, does it work today for the group of people who happen to be using these apps? It's where does the next decade of growth come from? Mm. Okay. And and the big difference between e-commerce and this is, you know, would would Amazon and e-commerce have gotten the traction it did if it was literally a hundred percent more expensive, literally twice the price to get a product brought to your home instead of you picking up from the store? Well, I would argue that would be that would have been a niche product for rich people, right? The 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 the, the magic of e-commerce was you had the convenience. Um, of, of having it brought to you for the price of you going into the store because the engineer, the, you know, the, the, the entire system was engineered differently to be able to make that true, right? right. Um, and, and the reason why a lot of uh, a lot of in-store retailers got this wrong was they were trying to build e-commerce infrastructure on the on top of their store infrastructure, and and that it, that just it, the economics couldn't work. Um, so many of them realized that they had to actually look at e-commerce as, a, as an entirely separate business, et cetera, et cetera, you know, entirely different ways of, of doing distribution. And I don't, I'm not suggesting that that's the answer here. I don't know what the answer is, but I think what is clear is you're not just magically going to get 80% of people to just suddenly decide that it's okay to pay twice the price yeah. for, you know, for, for takeout for the convenience of delivery. I, I think, in fact, what we're seeing right now um, is that delivery is shrinking. We actually hit peak delivery, um, you know, uh, about 12 months. It was like at some point in, in 20, late 2021, early 2022. And okay. since then, it's not shrunk, not, not in a big way, but in a small way. Yeah, certain, certain delivery companies are taking market share from others. So it can, you know, some are growing, but overall the pie is shrinking. 
And you know, the reason for that is, is just obvious. It's just expensive. Mm, that's, that's super interesting. And, and like, it's, it's funny you mentioned that. Cause I was thinking about like the, I guess the, 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 the person that does delivery the best, you know, uh, you mentioned Starbucks in terms of the, 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 um, pickup side but i was thinking about you yeah. know Domino's and what they built on the delivery side is probably the best example maybe someone that built their own totally. like, tech yeah, pizza, you know, pizza 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 is a good example um because you know the pizza category makes up actually a, i can't remember the stat off the top of my head but it is a shockingly large portion right. of delivery like like not right. like not like 10 percent, like more way more than that um yeah. Uh, you know, and it's really just like three or four brands that like single-handedly make up some very meaningful portion of all food delivered. Um, and, and it's a good point. It's a good, it's actually a good example that it was, you know, pizza was designed ground up for delivery. Right. Um, right. they, they, it was engineered for that, where I would actually say that their, their primary customer is getting it delivered and sure. store pickup is the secondary. Um, is a secondary thing. And so, you know, their economics are designed for that. And again, they don't have, you know, there's a big difference between having in-store specials um, versus having fundamentally, you know, having every menu item be marked up 30% for delivery. Like, I think, you know, they're, they're probably, it's a good example that like they, if, if they got the model right, well, then everyone else is doing it wrong. That makes sense. That's super interesting. And so like, just to, to kind of walk through, through that journey, like, you know, you start getting that, you know, to go back to, let's say the early days, Toronto, you start growing, you decide to finally name it. You come up with the name ritual. Cause you're like, okay, we got something here. How you, how, how, first of all, how are you growing in these cities? Can you share any of that knowledge with, with maybe some fellow entrepreneurs? Like what did you guys do to figure out how to maybe like grow in these local cities? And I'd love to maybe just hear a tidbit of that journey of how do you, sure. how did you replicate yeah. that across other cities? Yeah, um, you know, very, very much what I what I sort of said earlier, which was we really rather than competing with restaurants, we just try to figure out how to further align with them. And our, I would say that our primary our primary mechanism of growth was actually thousands of restaurants um, suggesting to their own customers that there is a most a more convenient way to order from their store mm. using which um, and we just made it very easy for restaurants to do that with you know in-store signage digital signage things like that mm. but that was a big part of it um, you know customer referral was a big part of it we actually did um, you know we, we weirdly never did paid acquisition wow. <laughs> not because we didn't uh, want to or try but paid acquisition works really well when you're trying to do things at countrywide scale or even citywide scale. The challenge we always had was, you know, we always we function typically in the office districts of of a city. So we'd be in typically the financial district and other like the densest parts of the city. And so paid acquisition was always very challenging for us because well, it's really hard to just target the financial district. Just most online advertising doesn't work like that. You can target Toronto, you can target New York. It's pretty hard to target, you know, midtown New York. Um, right. So I think as a result, we we were almost, it was not that we we didn't want to make, uh, you know, or try paid acquisition. It was that it wouldn't work for us. So we were forced into figuring out other ways of growing, which I think in the end, you know, was a bit of a blessing in disguise. We, um, 
you know, we were able to focus all of our effort and resources on our customers and aligning better with them and uh, having them, you know, uh, rather than handing money over to the ad networks, we rather hand over incentives and, uh, you know, uh, discounts and rebates and, and, and cash back to our own customers, um, you know, which I much prefer to do. Right. Um, so that was a big part of it. The other part of it was um, we worked with office buildings very closely because we tended to be something that made, you know, working in an office better. And, you know, this is, you know, we spent too much time on it, but, but you know, weirdly our biggest, what, probably Ritual's core insight and, and you know, I'll call it like a hack was that we, we were able by, by addressing like two or three percent of the geographic area of a metro, meaning the downtown core, we were able to reach maybe, I don't know, 40, 50 percent of the population. It was it was an incredibly efficient way of, of you know, addressing a metro because because at least up until 2020, March of 2020, we had, yeah. you know, a meaningful portion of the population of a metro would, it was almost like the pulse of a, you know, of a city. Everyone would come in five days a week and it was such habitual routine uh, for people that it was, it was just an incredibly efficient um, go-to-market strategy. So, you know, with, 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 with working with just, you know, hundreds, maybe a couple thousand restaurants in the densest part of the city, we were able to capture uh, an incredible share of wallet, like basically the Monday to Friday, nine to five spend of a meaningful portion of the population of that system, right? And that was really, that was really the insight. Um, and, you know, this is yeah, the, see where this is going. The obvious conclusion yeah. here was that what was <laughs> our greatest strength um, up until COVID, just, we ended up just getting, um, how do you know, use use many different many words to be used from the dictionary here wallop maybe um but but i think that like it was it was just so unprecedented that um i think in a million years i could not have imagined in 2014 that there would somehow it may somehow be the end of offices right yeah. or or not, i don't know if it's the end but like such a meaningful change in yeah in people spending time in offices and, and, and by the way for the last couple of years no it was the end like there were there were periods of time where like they were literally closed down less yeah. than five percent yeah they were closed down they were to the point where most of the restaurants had to close down yeah um you know for for a period of time because you couldn't you couldn't sustain being open for you know when you have some one percent of people exactly. um, spending yeah. time there so so you know i think that that's it's it's weirdly our our greatest insight and our our greatest sort of um, the, the the thing that propelled us to have amazing that, that economics, leverage, yeah. Yeah. yeah, amazing unit economics at a time where none of our other competitors did. You know, we we the one thing was, and this may sound crazy in today's world, but back in the day, most delivery companies had what was called negative unit economics, which means for every order that they delivered, they lost money on average. Which is an insane idea, right? That you can pay to acquire a customer and then literally lose money on every single order, uh, you know. And that was—I mean, they obviously had a, had an had an end, end game plan, and, and you know, uh, I, I don't know if COVID was the sole reason why it ended up working out, but I would say that it was a material reason that it worked out. Where you know, when basically all forms of 
going to a restaurant become like literally illegal and the yeah. only way for you to access a restaurant is to get it delivered well i mean that was obviously a very huge boom um you know for delivery um that that's some that was the only thing that started to make those economics work was that that surge uh you know but up until then we we just had we were probably one of the only companies in the space that had positive unit economics at every order we actually earned revenue you know, in every order because we didn't have all of the insane the insane cost of logistics uh but it, you know again i think that the last the last few years has been has been challenging you know i think the most challenging part of that about navigating the last few years is you know if we conclusively knew that this was the end of offices well then it actually be kind of easy just move on to other things <clears throat> i think what is very clear was that we've we took a we're we're going to end up taking about a four year hiatus from offices but i think it's like pretty clear in my mind and from what i see you know pretty much every major tech company has required people to be back in offices and these tend to be the most liberal um lenient forward thinking you know companies that exist and so you know when zoom is ordering their employees back you know back to an office 3 or 4 days a week i think i think that tells you like pretty conclusively it's not to say that you know 10 or 15 years from now that the the technology make it good enough that we can truly simulate an in person exchange over the internet it's not it's not that we will never get there we are just clearly not there today right. um and i think that for for many companies this was in you know an interesting experiment and and you know yeah we don't we're not going to get back to 90% of people being in an office 5 days a week but i think we will get to a point where it's materially more than we see today so i think this is the tough part you know that we have a lot of office building partners who are you know similarly struggling and and trying to hang in there um and you know we're we're doing our best to support uh and also you know figure out how to be we the the we have to you know the hack that worked for us of like oh just just be in the small area to to be able to um address a, a big portion of the population well that just doesn't work anymore right um you know so we we both on one hand we can't just you know sit around waiting for offices um uh so you know what we have to do is try to meet users where they are uh and be more relevant to our customers when when they're at home not just at work but you know that's a it's a pretty fundamental change it it goes right. from so, you need to address 5% of a metro to 50% of a metro so yeah. it's a you know it's a pretty it's, big deal yeah and i mean like if uh you know i speak to a lot of entrepreneurs and if if building a business is not hard enough which which as you know is is getting getting a curveball of uh of of covid um is definitely puts a wrench into an already uphill battle um and i think one of the things that comes to mind is is the the idea that you know a lot of people obviously know that a lot of businesses suffered during covid a big chunk of those restaurants with you know the exceptions of online ordering or like a delivery i should say things like that that maybe spiked um but what people sometimes forget is there's a, a lot of the tech like ritual like whisk that supports restaurants those were tough times for 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 us cuz like I'll give you a parallel with whisk like it was like 70% of our client base was like especially cuz we generally work better let's say with full service restaurants closed so everyone paused their subscription we're a SaaS business so it was just like 70% of revenue just kind of on pause and we're like all right you know now what kind of thing and so it's it's a super super tough position to be in but what I'd love to kind of maybe hear from you is like how did and I, and i think this can help other kind of entrepreneurs and 
restaurateurs who you know have maybe been through tough times how did you kind of go about navigating you know those tough times and coming out the other side because I, I can only imagine you know whisk got hit hard and we're, we're, we're a fraction of your size right yeah um we lost we lost something like 92 percent of our revenue in three weeks um Jeez. you know and we were processing hundreds of millions of dollars in, in, in food sales at that time on, you know, on, on an annualized basis. So that was, it was a pretty big deal, um, wow. for us. It was just, it just made the entire, like literally it was like having the rug pulled out from you, like overnight, three weeks, but really I would say two weeks, um, wow. that all happened. And That's I think amazing. the really unusual part was we had actually done a pretty big international expansion and the kind of the most absurd part of it was. Normally you would expect, even if there was a crisis, that there would be a crisis in one country. Right. But the idea that it would be in North America, Europe and Australia simultaneously was pretty inconceivable. Yeah. Um, and, and so that was, you know, that was pretty, I don't know what other word to use for it, but like insane. Yeah. And, Impossible to predict. And, like. <laughs> well, and, and the second part that made it very challenging was the normal tools you had, like what you would normally do is like get into a war room and work with people. Well, you couldn't, um, it was literally illegal to, you know, come into the office with your team. So you had to kind of, not only did you have to solve this crisis, but you had to do it. And, you know, <laughs> my, my kids couldn't go to school. Their nanny couldn't come to work. And so it was, it was actually just a, a totally bananas month where you, I was part-time IT support for my kids during the day because they were going to go to online school. I had a, oh a four-year-old who'd never used a laptop and had to dial into Google Classroom. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I was like full-time IT that. support, trying to work with the board on, like, wow. you know, what, what's the game plan here? So it was like truly a uh, an insane an insane time. Um, I don't know that I have like a great answer for how you get through it. I think. Um, you know, I think we still had conviction in the problem we were trying to solve. I think we, what, what we really did, to be honest, for a couple of years, you know, at least a year there, what we said was like, look, we're in the same boat as our customers. Okay. And I actually think that there's, there's something, there's something, um, builds a level of empathy when restaurants know that it was not that, that they got hit hard and we got a win out of it. Right. We both got hit hard, okay? right. and there's just a certain level of empathy of like we know what you're going through, and yeah. and and we mean that because we're literally living through it ourselves, right? right? So I think I think that that was having customer empathy. I always feel is very important, um, and really what we did was we said, look, what can we do to help? Like there was no, you know, I don't know if this was right or wrong, but. We, we tried not, like, I didn't really think, the, the world was so uncertain because, for example, at that time, it was like, look, this could all be over in three months. Could have. In fact, in some, yeah. in certain countries that managed it differently, it was. Uh, and it went back to normal, certain Nordic countries, right? Yeah. So a lot of it was like unpredictable policy decisions um, and things like that. So we really weren't sure, are we dealing with a, a weird three-month problem, a six-month problem, a 12-month problem? I never would have predicted that, you know, be a multi-year problem yeah. um and what we said was like look how can we be of most service to our customers at this time and what we decided was um what everyone what every restaurant needed was online ordering 
Okay, because again, it, in fact, in many cases, it was illegal <laughs> to have people wait around, having multiple people waiting around in your store was like not allowed. You could only have one or two right. customers at a time. Capacity. So every every restaurant sort of needed order ahead so that you didn't have people congregating inside of stores. And so what we immediately did was kind of broke apart product and and uh, didn't you know didn't make it so, so that order online ordering was built exclusively into our app. We launched a web product uh, where any restaurant that wanted to could uh, add online ordering to their website. Um, and we started partnering with, you know, many cities. We did, um, you know, LA, New York, Toronto, lots of large cities where we, you know, went to work with, with them and made this, made the product freely available to, to restaurants to use. And that was really what we did for the, you know, for the first year. Um, and then I think for a while, we just needed to wait for the dust to settle. You know, we, it was, we didn't want to, on one hand, we wanted to adapt. And on the other hand, we didn't want to sort of irrationally jump from one, you know, one, like, and, and I think it was the world changed so many times, actually, right. in that period of time where it was, you know, there were a lot of head fakes and like, it's over. Oh, it's not over. You know, yeah. oh, people are coming back to work. Oh, they're not coming back to work. So it was actually the, the hardest thing was the, the, the world was so unstable. Yeah from our perspective in terms of the decisions that we needed to make that in some ways you were better off just trying to be of service to your customers versus trying to, you know, and I think that's what we tried to do until we felt like we could see more clearly, uh, we, we couldn't even see two weeks ahead. So it was hard, right, to, build, right. it was hard to build a plan. But, but you know, at some point in, in 2022, I think things started to really settle down and we believe we could actually finally maybe, you know, see six months ahead and, yeah. and start to build and, you know, craft a strategy around that. And, you know, we're still, we're still working through that. You know, we're, we're one of those businesses that we, we had a meaningful recovery because of a number of things we did, including, you know, working more closely with companies and, and office buildings and, you know, doing, building useful products for restaurants. All of those things have helped, but I think, um, you know, we still have more work to do to fully transition to, you know, the world we left behind in 2019 right. and, and what office culture was, was then to you know, the world we're in today. And so I guess maybe to, to, you know, slowly wrap things up, where would you say is like the, I'm sure a big part of it's still kind of figuring it out, but like what's, what's next for, what's next for ritual, uh, or at least what you can share, cause you might, you know, maybe certain things are still in the works, but what's, where do you see kind of ritual going vision, you know, mission, and then, yeah. And I'd, I'd love for you to maybe also just share, cause we're going to also send this to we have about 20,000 or so like, uh, people in our newsletter restaurateurs. So maybe even just talk about like, where you guys yeah. are headed and, and what, what's some advantages of using ritual, you know? Yeah. You know, I mean, starting with the first part of the question, I think yeah. that what I, what I try to focus on are like, what are the problems in the industry that are, that are still to be solved. Right. And, um, so I think that's one part of it. And, and, you know, agreeing on solutions, is can be can be nuanced but hopefully there's broad agreement on what the problems are um so I, so i think um we touched on many of them through through this episode you know yeah. one is there's almost this duplication you you have this weird problem i i would say that the future of digital growth for restaurants today is uncertain because you have this tension you have this competitive pressure between you know, what restaurants want is good, the, 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 the control and the economics they have when they have direct customer relationships. Okay. That's what restaurants want. They want, they want to own their customer. 
they want the customer to experience their brand and their food and their ordering in the way that they um, what they they designed it. Okay, they they need to maintain the profitability, mm. uh, and, and it's very hard to to have a middleman that takes more commission than your profit margin. Well, that's that's difficult, um, and, and and leaves you with having to pass on a meaningful you know convenience fee in some way to your customers. And I don't mean. 99 cents. I mean, inflating everything by 30%. Like that's a pretty big deal. Um, and and the challenge is that what the customer wants is all in one place convenience. They 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 don't want to deal with you know just like even like why is Amazon want any commerce? Well, I just don't want 20 customer accounts, right? And Shopify helps this with with Shopify Pay oh, yeah. and things like yeah, that. So again, you can you know the yeah. point is it's not that people don't want the the sort of assortment and the uh, the choice of lots of different. We want a vibrant ecosystem. Okay, what I don't want is have to deal with everyone's account creation and 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 you know the differences in how all of these things work. And and, and consumers vote with their dollars. Okay, yeah. and so it's not. This is not a question of subjective opinion. It's like look at where you know the, the dollars are being spent today. And even though you know you could argue that customers consumers value that convenience even more. Than inflated prices to some degree because they're still choosing to spend their dollars in, in, in those kinds of places, right? So the point is that they play consumers place a very high value on not having to deal with you know fragmented, dis, disjointed experiences. So to me, this is like the big problem to solve, which is you know how do you solve the problem for the customer yeah. in a way that still retains control and profitability for a restaurant and and gets out of this um, this mess that we've you know that the, the food ecosystem is in right now, where you have weird pricing, and because in the end, I, my, my the experience, I think the lesson to take from e-commerce is that in the end, that is going to fail. That that I actually have pretty high conviction in. That like the model we're in is not the long-term model. That I think is clear. It, it's a transitionary model in the same way that you know retailers and e-commerce uh, uh, experimented with. You know, with pricing in that way. So I think that there, there yet is, is to, there, there is another very meaningful um, evolution hmm. that has to happen. Um, and you know, I'm not, I don't, not to say that we're going to be the ones necessarily to solve it, but I think that we, we, we can find common ground with, you know, many other companies and many other restaurants that like this is a problem. This is one of the top problems. You know, it may be said differently than the way I said it. I think yeah. most restaurants would say that this tension between the lack of control and profitability on third parties, you know, versus, um, you know, and, and the challenges with what I talked about, like it's on their minds, right? Yes. And it's still a big problem that hasn't been solved. So I think that's, you know, that's the kind of thing that's top of mind for us. You know, um, things like many companies and office buildings are trying to do more to incentivize, to make the employee experience of coming into an office better. And food is a big part of that. And we built a lot of products to, um, you know, for companies and office buildings to use to more easily. And you know, you never have to go build out a new physical cafeteria because, well, all of the restaurants in your building can be like your cafeteria, and you can have subsidy programs and and, and whatnot. You know, using restaurants around you instead of having to compete with them by building a cafeteria. So that's another thing that we, you know, we right. we believe in. And so I think again, there's there's no shortage of opportunity and problems to solve. Uh, we just have to find, you know, and, and these are things we're working on. Uh, and so I think, you know, the future for us is hopefully um, being able to solve a, a very, a very large problem 
uh, for for restaurants and their and their customers. And you know, that's that's kind of what we're looking to do. I love it. And if there's one guy that could do it. It's Ray. It's Ray Ready. <laughs> I, I, we'll look right, back on that. this video one day, and I'll be like, "Hey, man, you've been through a lot, and you're still going." So honestly, uh, inspiration. You know, I do look up to you. I think you're you're a phenomenal entrepreneur, and and I appreciate you taking the time to share part of your journey with us today on the Whisking It All podcast. So, so thank you, Ray, for for being here. Yeah, feel feel the same, Angela. So yeah, thanks. Enjoyed the chat, and yeah, thanks for having me. Feel free to check out wist.ai for more resources and schedule a demo with one of our product specialists to see if it's a fit for you.